Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we're joined by a bear. bear. By a bear. We're joined by a bear today. We're joined by a bear. Yes. What are you bearish on, Nick Black? Nick, human what, behavior. Introduce yes, introduce yourself to the audience. The audience, your audience, we're going to be talking about crypto assets, stable coins, because Jeff and I talked about that several weeks ago. And I was wondering, as Jeff and I were talking, why am I hosting the show? What we need to do is substitute <laughs> me with a professional host. Nick, what kind of show do you host? So I do a show for Money Map Press, uh, which is currently going through rebranding. But what we do is talk about macroeconomics and how it may apply force to the digital asset space. So for someone that's not deep in the nitty gritty of the crypto space, but they want to try to absorb kind of a value based mentality, then we go through the various assets and we try to find ancillaries or equivalents in the real world and and make some kind of inroads there because there are 12,000 plus assets. There's another 75 a day. It is impossible to keep up with this space, but it is possible to keep up with some of the ebbs and flows in technology and some of the software, kind of these iterative steps as we approach whatever Web3, the Potomkin village that is Web3 might look like, then you can kind of look at the infrastructure and look at how a city might build from the ground up. And and so that's what we try to cover. The way I look at Nick, Emil, is that He's the guy who, if you have a question about a digital currency, you got you want to know about the details, the technicals, he's going to give you the honest answer, which is, as we all know, is in short supply these days because everybody's trying to sell you something and sell you a message, to sell you a product, sell you a coin, whatever. Nick's the guy you want to talk to who will give you the honest assessment. What a high compliment, Nick. Congratulations. He's never said that about me, that's for sure. Because <laughs> you're always trying to sell me on everything, Emil. That's how it goes. Well, dear audience, we talked about algorithmic stable coins in episode 208, and that was on March 28th. And Jeff believed that they may be something, they may be an answer to part of the problem that we're experiencing right now. Jeff, I'll let you explain it in detail. But for the audience that wants to learn more, they can go back after this episode, watch episode 208, or even better yet, Read the blog post upon which all this was based on. And that was posted at the Alhambra Investments website, where Jeff is the head of global research. And that was posted on the 22nd of March. And the title was The Monetary Answer, Undoing the Biggest Money Mistake of the Past. Jeff, why did you write that article? Why algorithmic stablecoins? Well, to get one to the other, let's start with the big picture. And the big picture, historically speaking, has always been what is the best way to efficiently, elegantly, fluidly, flexibly match the supply of money with its demand. And there are any number of ways that people have come up with to try to answer and solve that riddle, that equation, that problem, starting with you know a pure gold standard or a 100% reserve standard where you have a fixed amount of money that forces brutal discipline upon the marketplace, which, which uh, limits intermediation, which limits financialization, your positives to that. Then we flip all the way to the other side, which is, Emil, you're in, our, you're in my territory, which is the euro dollar system, which came out of a monetary constraint situation, Triffin's paradox, and said, let's go the other way. Let's just have open source creation of all the money that we can possibly stuff onto a bank balance sheet. And let's see how that does as far as you know, matching intermediation, matching supply of money with demand for money. And of course, predictably, it went way off the rails. 
leading to the 2008 crisis because what really happened was we had the money creation function embedded in unrestrained fashion in this global banking system, which meant that eventually over time, the banking system stopped being intermediaries, which is a method of trying to match supply and demand for money in an intelligent, efficient fashion. And when they stopped being intermediaries, you got things like subprime mortgages and currency swaps and a global flood of credit that eventually blew up on all of us. So the idea is, what do we do now? The euro dollar system's still there. It's doing an even worse job of matching supply and demand for money because the pendulum swung all the way to the other side again, which means that we now have a constrained monetary situation and have for 15 years. So we are still not if elegantly and efficiently managing the supply of money, which is constrained for the potential demand for it or legitimate demand for it. I hate using those terms, but you know, for lack of a better term, legitimate demand for money for commerce. Because let's remember what money is. Money is not wealth. Money is a tool so that the commercial economy can grow and sustain itself over a long period of time. So big picture, how do we solve the euro dollar? How do we solve intermediation? And how do we solve supply and demand for money? And I think, you know, one of the answers that has been presented over the last 15 years is digital and cryptocurrencies. So there's something there about let's move beyond the euro dollar to something else that might might offer a better way of doing this. Nick, what is a stable coin? Why? (laughs) What is an algorithmic stable coin? So this gets into a very kind of in the weeds conversation, but we're going to keep it, you know, 10,000 feet. I think it's it's important. Maybe we just take a real quick step back because a good kind of ancillary or or kind of a a similar situation occurred in the wildcat banking days. And it would be awesome if Jeff would kind of expand on that really quickly to remind people what banks were doing when they were just creating currencies out of thin air to solve like weird little liquidity inequities. Yeah, it's amazing. People have the wrong idea about what uh, money is. They think governments have held a monopoly on currency since time immemorial. That's never been true. In fact, more often than not, you go through history, you'll see, yes, government has a certain monopoly on certain kinds of money at certain times. But in the United States, and well as Europe and other places around the world, China, for example, private entities had floated their own currencies because in a fractional reserve lending system like we have in the United States, especially in the 19th century, the early part of the 19th century, you know, there are times when gold becomes, or silver in particular, would become hard to source. And the local bank simply issued paper against the promise to pay silver upon redemption. And it was a way of, you know, ghost money. It was a way of of this fictional units, fictional money, fictional, fictive currency, excuse me, which was a way to solve inelasticity at certain times. Of course, you know, there's the danger of, of letting private entities print their own currency is obvious. But however, the U.S. experience in particular during the wildcat banking era, when when banks issued their own currency, wasn't really all that bad. And that was really commonplace throughout the sort of the Enlightenment and the first part of the Industrial Revolution as banks and individuals experimented with different forms of currencies, kind of to see what worked and what didn't work. So and and I think that's a, a great way to kind of frame what's happening with stable coins. And so when you want to wrap your mind around the idea of a stable coin, the first thing you probably say is, well, stable, what's stable? How do you create stability in internet funny money? Right. And so if you believe in math, 
then you believe that there is some place where you would find mathematical stability. And so you have an asset and some other asset, whether it's collateral or a bag of other kinds of collateral or stuff, a bag of stuff that keeps this stable coin stable to something. It could be a pound sterling. It could be euro. It could be a variety of things. But whatever it is, stable means there's a basket of something keeping this stable coin stable. And you would say, well, that's great. That seems pretty easy, but it, it's not. It turns out it's not so easy um, because no, it, it gets very nuanced. And so in theory, everything is easy, right? Yes. It's, it's hey, on paper. This is real simple. But in practice, it's anything but. And, you know, we were just talking off air, Nick and I, you know, and Emil, that one of the reasons why we're even talking about stable coins is because of volatility in the larger, wider cryptocurrency space, which means volatility is good and bad because prices go up. Everybody's happy usually, but then prices go down or they swing wildly. The problem with that is in a monetary unit, you have wild swings in prices, which is actually a hindrance. And so the idea of a stable coin sort of arose out of the volatility of the wider digital currency space over the last couple of years, because trying to meet the medium of exchange role of money and hopefully unit of count that develops from it, you can see why stable coin would be sort of a, at least a partial answer to that problem. So there are kind of three basic types of stable coin, and then they all have these little nuances. So the, the, the yeah. types would be like exactly what Jeff was saying, a fractionally algorithmic fractionally, meaning there's fractions of other stuff in the bag. And this let's talk about a U.S. dollar stable coin. It has a bunch of stuff in a bag that hopefully maintains the one dollar to one stable dollar peg. And they will, you know, hopefully that collateral survives if it's a very volatile collateral you can get a lot of, you know, downward spiral death or chaos moments in it. And the cool thing about crypto is it all happens very, very quickly, sometimes in minutes, like everything's fine. And then it's all gone in minutes. And so that's probably important to factor in. These are also incredibly illiquid markets. The most liquid of the stable coins is incredibly illiquid. And, and any other market would look and go, oh, that's that's nothing. But we got to test these things out somewhere. And the best way to do it is to throw them into the real world and see who survives. So we have the fragile, the, the very fragile algorithmic stable coins. And it's easy. It's collateral in a bag against a coin. You hope the peg maintains because of this collateral. Cool. An example would be USDT Tether. It's 2% right. capitalized. We discovered that recently. After years, yeah. years of them claiming it was. After, after they tried to hide their financial, uh, the balance sheet forever, then they released it. And it was right. like, yeah, kind of what we expected. They're like, and, and then like, you know, corporate securities, there was some junk bonds. And I mean, sorry, not junk, high yeah. yield. Anyway, you started to look at it and it went, it got really uncomfortable really quickly. And oddly enough, it did not make a dent in the utility of the token. The token still is the most transacted of the stable coins. It is junk. It is garbage. All the people that worked on it are indicted or in various stages of indictment out of the Southern District of New York. And that doesn't seem to matter. People still hold it. It's, it's insane, but that's our algorithmic stable coins. That's one variety of it. You may have heard of Titan Finance. That was the one that Mark Cuban leaned pretty heavy into. And in, in about 36 hours, it completely co combusted to zero. That's another algorithmic stable. These don't have a good history, these, these fractionally algorithmic stable coins. 
but it's the best kind of mental example. You could imagine if you had one that was 100% backed by dollars, well, then it would be 100% stable, but no one can make money that way. And so that's where it gets a little bit wonky is someone's got to make money. Someone's got to be paid to support these ecosystems. And it's usually some game theoretical system where I'll pay you to stay in or to hold, you know, maybe a bond token and you hold a share token and we'll create this cool little triangle. And then you start saying, what is going on? Well, these are all ways to gamify people supporting a network of these other kinds of stable coins. So then you have seniorage supply stable coins. And Jeff, can you kind of explain seniorage to people what what that basically means? Well, before we get to that, I think this is probably a good time for me to issue our standard disclaimer, which is no matter what we say here, no matter what we talk about here, as Nick said, and as Neil said at the beginning, this is sort of a high level discussion. In no way are we recommending you buy, sell, or do anything with any of these coins that we're talking about. We're mostly interested in education and information looking at these things in terms of concepts. And before we get to seniors, I think that it's important to, again, go back to where Emil and I left off was, why are we talking about stable coins in particular? One is the the volatility in the crypto space, which again, we're not recommending people buy or sell or do anything in crypto or digital assets. We're merely talking about them as a way to try to solve what is a bigger picture problem. And then algorithmic stable coins, to me, I'm not saying that the current crop of them are the answer, but it shows that people are working on a way to move in the direction I think that everybody should move, which is, again, a dynamic monetary system, which attempts, at least attempts in some fashion to manage supply versus demand for money and do it do so in a, what we hope is an intelligent way. But as Nick said, it's not really working out all that well for them because this is a much, much more difficult problem than it might seem on paper, because on paper, it seems like supply of money, demand for money, you have an interest rate, you have some financial indication, boom, one, one levels out with the other. But, you know, human beings being creative, human beings being ingenious, they find ways to do certain things, as Nick was saying, to make money for themselves, regardless of whether that, that uh, helps or hinders the system that they're in, which is kind of what we're getting into with seniorage, is that there's this idea that, you know, you can make money on money just because you can make money on money, regardless of whether or not it has any function beyond that. And so the problem with algorithmic stable coins or even collateralized stable coins or undercollateralized stable coins, you know, things like Tether is number one, people don't really understand what they're about or what they're for. I think there's been, you know, there's been too much of a rush to just bring coins to the market because of prices and just try to, to just throw shit at the wall, forgive my language rather than look at these things in an intelligent fashion and think ahead about how we actually do this, solve this major problem, which is a medium of exchange problem, not a store of value problem. And you're right, Nick, it's really difficult because you have to, in these early stages, you have to incentivize, because of these are digital currencies, you have to incentivize an entire network to accept, you have to accept the payment processing, which is, I mean, there's some frictions and costs there. You have to accept data processing, the ability for the network to continually uh, interact with the blockchain in that particular fashion. I mean, there's all sorts of various issues that crop up that are native to the digital space, as well as difficulties adopting digital currencies to the real world in any real world sense of using a actual medium of exchange, which is somehow tied to a smart way to balance supply and demand for money. And it's incredibly difficult, but also I think incredibly interesting and incredibly uh, positive and uh, over the long run. So again, we're not recommending 
anybody buy or sell cryptocurrencies. We're just simply looking at these technologies, the innovation that's going on, the, the thinking that's being put to actual test in some of these cases and seeing maybe where these things could possibly go in the future. Seniorage. Well, before we get on seniorage, let me let me give people just two examples, because people might say, well, why would you even why would I want one of these wonky things? Well, there's a couple of times you might. So, for instance, let's say you have a bag of various assets, digital or otherwise. Right. You Maybe you got yourself some Bitcoin and you've got yourself some some uh, U.S. treasuries converted into crypto or some synthetic asset or, or what have you. And yeah. you say, I'd like to buy coffee. Well, that medium of exchange question comes up and unit of account question will come in and the coffee shop says, I'm not really trading fractions of digital treasuries and I don't really want your Bitcoin. I just need some dollars. Can you get me some dollars? So these stable assets, like a stable dollar, would make sense for regular commerce, just nickel and dime commerce. They also might make sense when a market is moving in one direction or another or people are, you know, speculating in either direction. And you might say, you know, I'd like to get to the sideline, but I don't want to leave the digital space. I don't want to go back to paper dollars, but I would like to have some kind of proxy asset that would let me just kind of wait. So I'd like something that looks like a dollar, but it's still in that digital system, in that decentralized ecosystem that I can trade for other decentralized assets. Maybe I want to bounce around for a couple of assets. I want to go and find some dividend paying this or that. And there's a, just a variety of different reasons. You might want to park some of your value units in a, a dollar or, or a euro or a, whatever your favorite currency is, stable asset and, and kind of just sit and wait. That's the allure behind something like a collateralized stable coin, right? It's essentially, as you're saying, Nick, it's nothing really more than a money market fund, a traditional money market fund that has stable assets or high liquid, low, uh, low risk assets. That is in, as you said, the digital space. And so the allure of a collateralized stable coin is that you get something like a money market fund, or at least you hope it's something like a money market fund. But it, because it's in the digital space, it gives you sort of the benefits of being digital. So you have a money market fund, that type of security, assuming it's not a fraud, it's not some kind of scam that's been put together by a bunch of shysters or something like that. <laughs> assuming it actually has the assets that, that it claims to have. You essentially have a digital money market fund. And so you can see the, the uh, demand for something like that. Emil, in, in the gold business, do you guys get people coming to you asking if you make that, tr that jump to digital? Like, for instance, could I tender gold to you and receive stable coin in, in return? I've heard of it uh, talked about. I haven't heard of it actually being done at scale or moved. It hasn't come up on the radar screen. I haven't seen anybody make that leap where this coin represents gold. Perhaps because there's something like that already that's very similar, that's easier to understand, the exchange-traded fund. So perhaps that's why it hasn't happened yet. You know, that's part of the issue here, too, with stable coins is you kind of have to define stability, right? I mean, the obvious answer is like these collateralized stable coins, which is just tie the thing to the U.S. dollar. But is that really a good answer, too? I mean, is that really what we want to do? Do you want to tie everything to like maybe recreate money market funds that are suddenly tradable? So instead of equity shares that sit in a brokerage statement, they're actually coins that you can actually trade back and forth that are they're at least 100% reserved or some fractional that can be partially collateralized stable coins. But the issue is what defines stability and what is the best way to define stability? And the, and the problem that Emil and I talked about on the previous podcast is I'm not convinced that that's the way that you should go after stability. 
or that's how you should define stability, that the stability of the price of the coin, especially if it's tethered to the U.S. dollar or something like that, to me, that doesn't define actual stability, or at least the stability that we're actually after, because all that does is simply try to take a baby step forward into a digital world without really changing the dynamic of the monetary marketplace. So how do we define stability? There's that may be even the more interesting question. Well, and, and you could imagine a system. And, and so we're, we're going to talk about seniorage type tokens, seniorage supply, which, by the way, they always fail. But don't worry, everyone, because all world currencies also always fail. So you can rest assured that no one's failing any different than any other failure. It turns out that currencies, if you extend them into the future and you inject some human greed, you get debasement and hyperinflation and kind of dictator effects. It's just kind of a human, you know, but we could imagine a future that is that is more managed by algorithm and, and maybe even, you know, artificial general intelligence to take the the emotion and the greed and hopefully take that out of the market so that you could have some kind of stable, almost universal asset. And I think that's what you're kind of alluding to, Jeff. Yeah, let's take a big leap here. Let's not define stability based on the U.S. dollar or something existing. Let's define stability as an economy that grows and doesn't really worry about money because the coins just function the way they're supposed to. Again, this is <laughs> this is the ideal on paper version. And to me, if we're defining stability as a st- stable price of the coin, I don't think that captures enough of the elements that go into, again, intermediation, matching supply and demand. I think, you know, uh, especially when you get into financialization, the idea that we need to raise the supply of a coin because demand for it tends to be high, therefore interest rates would rise or some other uh, some other measure of imbalance between demand and supply. Just trying to maintain a constant level of the coin. I think that's too simplistic, but it's the right idea because, again, the purpose here, especially an algorithmic stable coin, is to make sure that demand and supply are always in balance. The question is, how do we find balance and what is that stability? What is that? What does that balance actually mean? And then, then that leads to the next question. Once you define what stability is, how do you measure it? How do you make sure that you're actually hitting your marks? And that's really, I think, where it's going to take a huge leap of innovation or at least a huge leap of intellectual capacity and thinking about these issues, you know, all the various assignments, all the various factors that go into making a monetary system stable, not necessarily by price, because you often you want economic prices to move around. This is a dynamic world. We're humans. Everything changes. So it's not like you want to define, you want to limit prices. You want to let them move around in the way that they do so that the end result that we're actually looking for is a stable economic system. And that's really hard to define. And if you're actually thinking about it, that's what the Fed's doing right now. They're trying to define a stable economic system using really poor models, really poor quality data, and very poor theory. So we're kind of throw that Fed model out, throw the euro dollar model out. Maybe a big leap forward is to define stability in a way that isn't even tied to the U.S. dollar or the current system at all. I think we had talked uh, a few months ago. We had we had gotten on and had a discussion. And I think we had all kind of agreed that a currency that would serve humanity would need to both would need to have um, elasticity. So it would need to expand and contract. And, And you can't do one or the other because if you limit one of those two things, People come in and have a tendency to want to game the medium of exchange. So they game the markets and, you know, we have price discovery and that's wonderful. And that's what makes markets. And when things get too expensive, buyers back off. And when they get too cheap, 
you know, people come in and, and they tend to arbitrate everything. And that's great. But we don't want people gaming the medium of exchange because that yes. has all of these nasty side effects that that unduly punish the lower economic class. They unduly, you know, have positive effects for the, I hate to use the one percenter thing, but they got really, really rich during COVID. And, and, and you might say, well, during such a horrible time where the whole economic system grinded to a near halt, how are some people getting punished and other people winning in a situation that we should just be all treading water? And that's when you come in and start gaming the currency itself and gaming the, the distribution of that currency. So stable coins, hopefully some iteration of this, some iteration of universal basic income could be amalgamated in, but it has to be expansionary. It has to be able to expand as, as economies expand and population expands and, and, you know, these supply and demand curves push up. And then it's got to be able to contract when things look a little nasty. And we may need to then go in and do very specific, very calculated forms of local stimulus, which looks a lot like those wildcat days. And, but that's in a sense what these are. The problem that I see right now with stable coins is that, well, the accounting just doesn't exist. When you lift up the skirt, you're, you're almost always perplexed. Like the smartest people in the world will look at some of these things and go, well, how's that, how's that work exactly? And so that gets us into seniorage supply coins. So let's talk about that. So um, Jeff, can you just give everyone a real quick idea of what seniorage is and kind of the money made between printing currency and unleashing it? It's basically the idea that, you know, your cost of creating money is less than the quote unquote value of which you issue it or sell it or recycle it or redistribute it or whatever. So in essence, you're making an artificial profit from making money, literally making money. And so that leads to, as Nick was saying, at least all sorts of distortive effects at best, negative side effects at worst, including what us Austrian economists call Cantillion effects, which means when you have a high seniorage rate, the people who make the money benefit the most, which is exactly the euro dollar system. Because let's face it, banks had some cost of creating credit out of thin air on their ledger system, but it wasn't all that much. And so they benefited greatly during the globalization period, especially the 1980s forward, which is why you have these massive global behemoths all over the world, at least before 2008. This seemed like the financial system was taking over because it literally was taking over. There was a benefit to creating money out of thin air that was far in excess of actually doing the process of creating the money, which in the, in the case of the banking system simply means maintaining these networks with other banks, hiring people, accountants, lawyers, lobbyists to do all of these things that they wanted to do. It's a mismatch between the quote unquote price of money and the cost of creating it. And so there are there are a variety of these stable coins that are based on that model. And, and so you could think of it like this. It may take me three cents worth of programming time and development to pop out a one dollar stable coin. So the seniorage would be ninety seven cents. And you would say that that seems egregious. Yes, it is indeed egregious. But that's one way to entice new investors to pump money in. But it's kind of one of those, you know, in the 1800s, when the guys would go around with the little box and they would say, you put in a one dollar bill and a ten dollar bill comes out. You're like, I want to buy the box. It's a lot like that box. And, and, and inside there's it turns out those don't work into perpetuity. And these things unwind pretty quickly. It goes back to the idea of elasticity. 
Because when you think about it, I mean, I think we all agree that, you know, we love to romanticize the gold exchange fixed money system because it seemed like price stability was the best way to go. But what happened time and time and time again in every place this was tried is that money tends to pool, which there's nothing wrong with that. That's sort of what the financial economy is supposed to do is redistribute fixed money during times of uh, risk aversion, adverse situations. That pooled money had the downside, which was inelasticity. And inelasticity always led to uh, banking crashes, uh, bank runs, and then depressions, widespread economic depressions, some of the worst in human history, including the 1930s. So inelasticity is something that we, we should seek to avoid. And the problem that you know, Nick is trying to describe is, well, how do you avoid it? What's the most intelligent way to avoid it? Because we want some form of elastic currency. But what does, you know, how do we define elasticity? How do we define elasticity in the sense of stability? <laughs> so it's, it's an enormously difficult challenge because, again, it's a dynamic system and dynamic society. But elasticity, dynamic world, matching supply and demand for money because the supply of money shouldn't be constant. Sometimes it should be good. Sometimes it should be low. Sometimes it should be enforcing discipline. Other times, like the Federal Reserve is supposed to do, Something should be stepping into supply currency when everybody else, that are, especially the, uh, the uh, small number of holders of a particular currency, when they're no longer willing to supply at any rate. When you have backwards elasticity like we had in the repo market in September 2019, for example, there needs to be some way for the system to the system at least to remain stable because the supply of currency is elastic. And I would also add that here, the overriding goal here is when we talk about seniorage and everything else, is that if this monetary system works the way it's supposed to, we shouldn't even think much about it at all. It should be just running in the background, sort of like the internet. It just kind of hums along in the background. We don't really know about it because we're so busy focusing on real actual commercial activities. You know, I go to the grocery store. I don't, worry, I don't have to worry about the price of my coin or whether or not it's the total complete scam. I just know that the coin works and that I can exchange my labor for goods and services at my own choosing. So a monetary system that's that's elastic and sufficient and uh, sufficiently stable should be one that we don't really notice, and therefore seniorage is sort of eliminated because the the cost of creating currency uh, should be relatively equal to how uh, to its price in real world goods and services. Right, and when it's not, people game it. Yeah, exactly. And if they, well, the, the argument is essentially that you need people to arbitrage uh, certain certain facets of a monetary system because that helps police and create stability. I mean, that was certainly the way. If you put it, to, if you really narrow your focus in the euro dollar system, it seemed like it was very stable because you had dealers, for example, policing the hierarchy between something like the federal funds market, overseas uh, currency swaps, and all sorts of these other pieces of the system. So that it looked very stable. Stability wasn't defined as price stability. Stability was defined by this wave of globalization that swept over the world and created an enormous amount of actual prosperity. The problem was it was, it was an illusion. It wasn't really stable. And so we didn't actually have a sufficient elastic, sufficiently elastic system so that when things went wrong, right back into deflation and depression again. Nick, have you defined the three types of algorithmic stablecoins or stablecoins in general? So number three is the, the rebase. Somebody will call some, some people will term it rebase. I, I term it rebase, debase, right? It, where, <laughs> because you got to do both. And 
they usually, they're very simple to define. Um, they'll just reprice the value of the token throughout the day periodically, uh, sometimes fractions of a second as the token is moving around. And, and they? well, whoever or whatever software package or suite manages the token. But a lot of times it's, so you have a piece of software, imagine a piece of software with some rules kind of coded into it. And it looks at this currency and it says, okay, if the value of the currency gets over a dollar, we want it to be pegged to a dollar. So we're going to have to debase a little bit. We'll print, we'll create some more currency units that will bring the aggregate value down. And if the value goes down, well, we'll subtract some currency units, we'll burn them out of the system, and that will raise the aggregate value back up to that dollar peg. Or lock them up, right, Nick? Yeah. There's some other ways that they do the uh, sort of the deflationary cases, they'll take some of the currency units out of the situation or out of the circulation, excuse me, and they'll pay people to hold them. It's almost like you, I'll give you an interest rate for a term deposit. Yep. You know, it's, it's basically the Fed's TDF, which is take the currency out of circulation, hold it for this amount of time. We'll engage in a smart contract where I give you some interest, some really rewarding interest rate, so long as you hold those tokens for the, the agreed upon period of time. So it's not like they, you know, they destroy currency, but they, they try to lock it up for certain periods of time so that it, it acts as a uh, sort of like, you know, in a nuclear power plant where the uh, control rods go in to restrict the uh, circulation of the coin. In some of the platforms, Jeff, they even call them, they refer to them as bonds and coupons. Yeah. Bonding, yep. right? And so you can actually buy like, like basis cash as one example, which, which I would never touch, but Again, it's one example <laughs> where they have a system where you have cash. Think of it as a, as a pyramid tends to be a good example of many of these crypto products. In this particular pyramid, you have cash or cash equivalents on the top of the pyramid. And then you have shares, which is kind of a nebulous token that one might own and benefit from more currency units coming into the system. And then there's bonds and you would buy up the bonds to suck currency units out if you were in a period of debasement, so let's say there's too many currency units, we got to suck some of those out. How are we going to pay people to do it? Well, when the, the value of the token is too high, we could pay the shareholders. When the value of the token drops too low, we get bondholders to go in and buy these bonds, which hoover up shares, which jack back up the price. And you can see there's no way this could ever you know, go the wrong. The funny thing is, though, about this, Nick, <laughs> is this is essentially open market operation. This is essentially what the Fed tries to do, except the Fed, as you know, Emil's shaking his head, <laughs> the Fed tries to do this, their open market operations in a non-monetary medium. They're using open market operations to either raise or lower the level of bank reserves. So, you know, in one sense, again, getting back to why stable coins are sort of where did they come from and what, you know, what, what opportunity is there? It's essentially to do some of the things the Fed is supposed to do, but in actual monetary medium, instead of this pretend shit that the Fed does all the time. Like today, we have actual monetary mediums where we're doing the same types of things, but, but instead of pretending it's, it's something monetary, it actually is. So in some ways, these are just adopting certain longstanding principles, monetary principles, and, and adopting them into the digital uh, native digital format. I was just going to say that I think that's a good way that you put it, Jeff, because this we are slowly digitizing a paper system, a kind of slow, clunky system, this legacy system, which some people refer to in the cool. The cool kids are saying trade fi, traditional finance, <laughs> trade fi, bro. Uh, and I'm like, that's so woke. However, 
as you take the traditional system, the legacy system, it makes more sense that maybe digital representations of paper documents for settlement, like in the stock market example, you have T plus two, right? There's no reason it should take two days to settle a stock transaction. It should take fractions of fractions of a second. So there's a lot of money that's gummed up in old systems in these inefficiencies in inequities in settlement that if you just cleared all of that out of the way, look at all of the currency units you would free up to do, to go find, you know, interesting investments or, or unleash animal spirits or who knows what might occur when you release all of that friction. The float. Right. And I think that's I think that's the wrong way to think about it. And I know I know it's exactly what you're saying. And that's the idea that we have too much float out there. That's not really, really going to clear up with a digital currency system or a settlement at a you know, subtle instantaneous settlement system. What you're going to eliminate is not just seniority, but rent seeker. Mm. There's a reason why we still have T plus two is a T plus two nowadays. And something I mean, look, the repo market went to electronic settlement decades ago. But yet we still have these uh, T plus whatever's settle these slow settlement process. One is because regulators are so far behind the times. But the real reason is because the Wall Street banks and these dealers actually gain the system by having slow settlement that is unnecessary. So going to an instantaneous or near instantaneous settlement system, we're not going to free up float. That's not the issue. We're going to eliminate all of that rent sinking. So it's much more, it's, it's, first of all, it's much more level playing field because you don't have that, that level of information asymmetry, but you also eliminate those frictions, which aren't float. It's, it's, we don't need to pay people to settle for us. It, we have the technology to do it. We don't need these people to game that settlement process for their own benefit because they're just extracting rent from the system that is unnecessary in this, the digital technology that unleashes that, that type of capacity to basically recreate what what is done now in a way that it should be it should have been done decades ago. So that's in, in the crypto space that principle of disintermediation, that transition from legacy to a newer, more more simple, more elegant math based system. You end up taking all of the the rent takers, the middlemen, and you replace them with software uh, or middleware. Right. And the joke is, if we got rid of all the fat rich white guys and we just replaced them with software, who knows? What might happen in that system? We don't know, actually. We can just no. we can just assume that the outcomes would be positive, but you know, people were agreed we'll find a way to to grind at the at the margins, right? So, and that's what we yeah. said before, right? Because there is there are positive benefits for people having the incentive to police money and police money markets because that tends to generate some you know maybe illusory forms of stability. But there is at least some element of stability there. And so you have to consider that there are positive effects to that type of situation where rent seeking may be beneficial if it's done correctly. And of course, you're just throwing around these terms that are always ideal and positive on paper that are very hard to monitor and you know very hard to define in actual practice. And you're right, Nick, it may be that we let set the set the system free and it all just collapses. Because it actually does need active policing. Sometimes you need adults in the room. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so that's, you know, again, so what we're really talking about here is thinking about these great, huge questions, big picture challenges. And the positive part about it is that the more stable coins that are thrown against the wall that fail, hopefully people learn from those mistakes because that's how humans learn. We learn the hard way. We learn from those mistakes and say, 
Yeah, that one failed, but there was something there that was actually good. There was something there that maybe the process or a piece of code, a way of doing things that maybe we want to, you know, pull that out of the the ashes of the coin and let's build something else upon that. And that's, I think, the positive thing here is that you can kind of see the evolution take place. You have the fixed money Bitcoin, then you have all sorts of volatility in those prices, store value versus medium exchange, which opened the door. Now we have all these stable coins trying to come at this, the problem from a very different direction, tons of experimentation. And so bottom line, I'm actually very positive about digital currencies, despite all these challenges, because there is tremendous amount of incentive to solve what is a global, huge, massive, earth shattering, social, society altering uh, uh, monetary problem. So let me let me ask you guys this. And I kind of want both of your thoughts on it. If we went into repo and we had digital settlement and we had very open books and you could see in real time how many, you know, points a single piece of collateral has been repledged or rehypothecated, how would that change repo if you knew this thing was eight times repledged? How would that change repo? I mean, it would be a, it would be a, a completely non-negotiable place. Um, to some extent, the people, the uh, institutions and, and, and agents that are operating repo understand the situation and realize that, you know, it's the cost of doing business. If I get failed out of a position, I get failed out of a position. There's some, you know, remuneration exchange to make up for it. We just sort of simply go on our own business and understanding it. It's it's almost like we all lie to ourselves. And as long as we all lie to ourselves, it's okay. But is that a really stable way of doing uh, what is supposed to be the safest way of exchanging money across vast global marketplaces? No. And it benefits the same rent seekers who are looking to game the, uh, the transaction system. So it's another way of saying that we don't need to do it this way because, and the only reason we do do it this way is because of the people who are incentivized to do it. So I think a clean repo market where provenance is as easily established, it's completely transparent, would look very, very different than the current repo market. And the question is, would it be a better repo market? And it's maybe not, it's not as clear cut as you might think. You might think that a clean repo market would be far and away better, but then you have to ask yourself the questions where people aren't incentivized to reuse or repledge collateral and what that actually means, maybe that offers higher costs of financialization to downstream end user customers. Maybe that actually creates a friction that dealers have actually solved, rehypothecate, as, as, as weird as it sounds, <laughs> maybe they've actually solved a problem by doing it this way. Of course, to their own benefit. So it's always an argument. But so to answer your question, Nick, I'm, you know, I don't think it's as clear cut and straightforward if we have clean repo versus the dirty repo that we have now. I would hope that it would be better, but we don't know for sure. And we won't know for sure until somebody actually comes up with a way to do this. I will say that a couple of years ago, I was approached by some people who were looking at using blockchain technology to establish clear title over repo so that you could track collateral. And what they found was that Almost every bank that they talked to to try this to try to sell this blockchain based repo collateral product, nobody wanted to do it. <laughs> so that kind of tells me, yeah, maybe we should do it. <laughs> that would have to have be a top repo. down, wouldn't it? If all the wrong people are saying we shouldn't, maybe we should. <laughs> Emil, what do you think? Clean repo, dirty repo? I'm along. I'm thinking along the same lines as Jeff because I'm the example in the tether space, right? 
before we knew what it was backed by, we could pretend and continue to exchange our Bitcoin for Tether, no problem, with full confidence, because they told us it was perfectly backed. Then we learned it wasn't completely backed, and it was only backed by, what, 2%, you said? And the rest was Two and less change. stable? And still it continues. <laughs> still it continues. So as Jeff said, the lies we tell ourselves, they get the job done, then maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not such a bad thing as ignorance bliss. If there was a better alternative to Tether, then perhaps there would have been a, a stampede away from Tether. If there's a better alternative to the existing repo market that is cleaner, then people would choose it. But uh, just because it's cleaner doesn't make it a better alternative ever since we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You know, there's, a, there's an issue here, too, that maybe we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. In this idea that we need to start over in a clean sheet, maybe we don't need to start over in a clean sheet. Maybe we need to just look at the system honestly, which nobody really has done. Everybody's just kind of assumed how the monetary system works. And they're, I hate to say it, but they're all wrong. Maybe we don't need to just completely start again on a brand new canvas. Like I said, some of the, the bonding from some of these stable coins is open market operations. In practice, open market operations at the Fed is a complete catastrophe because the Fed doesn't do money, doesn't look at the monetary system. It's open market operations and bank reserves. It's not actual effective money. Maybe open market operations done in an actual effective medium of exchange, that would work. Maybe we don't need to start again. And maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. There's some happy medium where we look at all the issues that were wrong with the system, but also be honest about some of the things that are right. As I often say, you know, the euro dollar system doesn't work, but that doesn't mean it, the whole thing should be scrapped and we shouldn't look at some parts of it, especially its flexibility and its dynamic functions and say, let's mimic some of those things. Those things actually work really well. And let's let's figure out how they actually fit together in a, in a good way that actually led to, like I said, the you know, globalization age of prosperity. Let's just make sure that this time it creates elasticity and it doesn't just fall apart because it's, it's, its stability is all illusion. I look at the stablecoin space as something just like the euro dollar situation that arose from a, a crunch for liquidity and a scramble. And, and you talk about it all the time. You guys talk about that scramble for collateral and, and all the kind of, you know, catastrophic unwinds that that can you know, create. And I think that when you look at the euro dollar and that that kind of panic for liquidity, when when banks step back, it's got to come from somewhere. And so the, then you have this euro dollar system where we can basically spin up dollar denominated loans from the ether. And then, and that's, but it solved a huge problem and it helped begin usher in a new era of like global expansion. And there's good and bad to that, but you know, I would say net net since the euro dollar spun into existence, the world's a better place than it was. And I would say that digital assets. Oh, Nick, I think it's unquestionably a better place. It's unquestionable. If you look at some of the places around the world, China, emerging markets, they started out as backwards, agrarian, subsistence agriculture. Now, some of these places are economic powerhouses. They have an expanding, or not expanding, but they, they have a, a sufficient middle class or a, you know, a, a substantial middle class, I should say. You know, there's absolutely wealth created, to, created during that period. The question is, you know, it didn't, it didn't last. Right. Then not. It, it leaves us exposed. Well, and that's, that's an interesting ancillary. So then you have, so you have the Euro, you have the Euro dollar and now we have a dollar system that's managed by who, whoever we think is, you know, we know it's not managed by the Fed, but it is managed by some regulators and, and politicians and some other interesting individuals. 
And then you have a Euro dollar system that I would say I would posit is mostly managed by people that have a better understanding of money because they're in the money business all day long. Now they have obvious perverse incentives and things like that. But then you have a crypto space that comes out in, and it kind of is born from some other technologies leading up to 2008, the Bitcoin white paper, 2009, January 3rd, boom, here's Bitcoin. And that is not, in my mind, that's not a, that's not a quasi Euro dollar, but the stable assets that spawn from that, this idea that you could have digital dollar equivalents, digital Euro equivalents, digital renminbi equivalents. That to me looks a lot like the next iteration of the Euro dollar system. And, but it doesn't mean it's the last version because stable coins, right. like all other currencies have, but two stages. It's very simple. There's the expansion phase and then there's the contraction to utter death phase. Collapse. Yeah. The death spiral. <laughs> And, you know, I think, Nick, the, the, the better term rather than manage, and I know you're struggling to, to find the right term, I think it's influence. Mm. So politicians, government, regulators, they have some limited influence on the current monetary arrangement. It's not nearly as much as it says in the textbook or what you hear on TV or across the Internet, but they have some ability to influence the system. And the same goes to, I think, individual bank participants inside the Eurodollar system, too. Nobody's actually managing it. Everybody's kind of reacting to the way things are going, perceptions hurting instincts and things like that. But there are some levels, some levers of influence over the monetary system too. But because it's so, because it's decentralized to a certain extent, there's nobody pull, pushing buttons like we're all supposed to believe Jay Powell's doing. There's nobody in control of it. And I think that the decentralization ele uh, part of it is rather elegant and something we should strive for rather than be afraid of. We're taught to be afraid of decentralization. I think that's part of what Bitcoin started was the idea that maybe we shouldn't be afraid of decentralization. Maybe there's really positive benefits to it because let's face it, you know, big data approach or, or big, you know, broad based approach to information and as well as, you know, processing information is getting it into intermediation, decentralized finance, all of these things. Maybe there's we should continue to go further toward decentralization rather than than backward toward the ideal of a centralization that never really worked out in practice. Because like you said, I mean, the Eurodollar system did, did a lot of wonderful things. It just, you know, it's left us exposed to a lot of bad potential. Jeff, I'm mindful of our time. Nick, forgive me. Sure. Let me ask you a question, Jeff. Then Nick, you go ahead after that. Let's assume you did manage to define stability. You have a coin, Jeff. Where would these coins take hold? Where would they take seed? Would it be top down from the IMF or from nations? Or would it be bottom up from banks, financial institutions or people? Where, where, how does this spread around the world? I think it's bottom up. People start using it for real world transactions, but not just using it, but using it regularly. It's not like I need to transfect from dollars into this one coin for a couple of times. It's thinking about actual commercial transactions in that, that uh, token or that currency, that coin. Stop thinking about things in, in dollar terms. It's almost like when you learn a new language and you start dreaming in the new language. You, know, you start thinking about everything in a new language that you just learned. That's what I think needs to happen is that from the bottom up, people stop thinking about dollars or banks or Wall Street or anything like that and just think, when I go to the grocery store, I'm going to whip out my phone and I'm going to use the token I always use and that, that I can do it at the grocery store because the grocery store just accepts that token. And we don't think about money. As I said before, 
when the system is working the way it's supposed to is supposed to work, we're only thinking about commercial transactions. We're not trying to think about seniority. We're not trying to think about gaming the monetary system. We're just thinking about we have a monetary system that works. And if I need to, I get paid in that coin. I use that coin or several coins. And then I get the goods and services I need from it. So I think it's definitely a bottom up thing. The caveat is governments are not going to like that. Right. And they're going to fight tooth and nail to avoid something like that. And so obviously the tug of war here is between the bottom up acceptance of a coin becomes wide enough before, you know, the, go- the government monster comes in and tries to strangle it in the crib. The, w- the way I would, and again, this will never happen because people are not big fans of, uh, you know, giving, giving up their or ceding their, their authority. But I think bottom up is absolutely right. And I think you would create a value token and that value token would be pegged to the entire population of the earth. It has, if it, if you're going to do this, you would distribute it to everyone on earth. You would distribute it based on the total currency supplies in existence. And you would have some math that determines as currency supplies expand, do you expand the currency at what level to maintain price efficiency across a basket of assets? So there are like, I'm not a fan of CPI because it gets abused and, and misused, but there are things about CPI that make sense. There are things about baskets of assets to use them to track them against those same assets and equivalents that make sense. And I think if you have a system that is elastic, that is evenly distributed to everybody as a starting point, right? And then you have a top-down approach where all of those governments are given a commensurate amount, but they're held within ranges and none of them can produce these currencies out of thin air. They're not given the power to print. I think that's probably where you start. And then you start nuancing what happens in localized areas when we have a wildcat situation or a typhoon or this or that, and we need some emergency relief or some stimulus, or we got to go juice the car market in Botswana or what have you. I think there are places where targeted stimulus might make sense. And if it's used in a very thoughtful and, and relatively forward thinking way, you know, I, I know that, but I'm thinking of the, as a politician, thoughtful and effective way is my reelection. There are millions of registered voters that I, whose lives I need to save. Not only that, but I'm going to throw another well, that, one. I mean, Emil, that's the potential. Sorry, Nick, that's the potential of digital currencies. If it's hard coded into the currency that we don't give the XYZ the power to print currency. And you're right. I mean, think about it. Where was the elasticity on August 9th, 2007 that would have maybe saved us from the disaster which followed? If it was hard coded into the stable coin or whatever digital currency that, hey, We've got a banking cri- banking crisis brewing here. We need some more currency so that markets function a little bit better. And it's taken out of the hands of the government and it's given to some other entity, whether it's the coin itself, it's actually hard coded into the coin, or whether it's some other decentralized way of saying, you know, is there a voting rights to everybody who owns the currency allowed to vote and say, there's some bad stuff happening here. We need some more elasticity. Does everybody agree that we need more elasticity? Something like that is actually possible with a digital currency. So we don't need to depend upon governments because, Amelia, you're absolutely correct. There's no reason we should ever, ever depend upon a government institution to do this type of thing, at least to do it in a, in a reasonably uh, effective fashion because competing interests, self-interest and everything else and just plain incompetence. Let's face it. 
bureaucrats are the last people we want in charge of anything, let alone the monetary system. So again, big picture approach. This is why I'm so optimistic about digital currencies, because I think there's ways to do these types of big issues that actually make some kind of sense, that actually lead to a more elegant and more um, equitable solution. You want to use that term where it's not just stuck in the hands of a bunch of incompetent bureaucrats or government politicians who are going to act in their own self-interest or anything like that, that it's it. The monetary system is elastic as well as more responsible and responsive to the actual system it's meant to serve. Because again, money is not wealth. It's a tool. And if it's, if it's left as a, an efficient tool, real economic growth, real sustainable economic growth will follow. Yep. I think, I think the principle, just the last principle that he mentioned, I think is, is the cherry on top. And that's that if you have a world currency that's in everyone's hands and there is some idea of representation, some digital identity and some value that you could either vote or delegate your votes to a representative that you feel, but you could pull that vote at any time and either vote yourself or redelegate in real time. Then I think the whole idea of being a fiduciary looks a lot different and the world looks a lot different. I mean, that's what gold was, right? Except we're not doing what gold did. The, the problem was gold gave you sovereignty. You took gold out of the system because you were afraid of the system. What that did was it tended to ruin the system. <laughs> so you were voting with your gold by converting, you know, paper deposit liability into gold, which actually made the problem worse, not better. So how can you solve the problem that gold kept running into, which was every time people got afraid, the gold just disappeared and the system would just fall into deflation and depression. So let's, as Nick was describing, let's have a monetary system where we have that type of sovereignty, where if you own the currency, you have rights over the system itself, but where we don't need to be so binary about it. You're either in the system or you're out of the system. You could have some way to have some nuance and at least some some level of understanding and uh, some level of responsibility. I think that's what people really want is some kind of responsibility. Nick, where can people find you on Twitter, on social media? Are you on television like CNBC, for example? So we're doing a thing for them, um, which I don't know if I'm allowed to really talk about. It's it's not all that interesting. Um, it has to do. Uh, my friends and I run an exotic car uh, rental facility in Los Angeles, and they're they're looking at the facility. And it's one of these kind of profit type things. It's it's probably going to be quite silly. Um, so that's not super exciting. I am doing an interesting project with Anthony Scarmucci. We'll have more details on that in about three weeks. I'm, I'm going to shoot that, uh, tomorrow and Friday as a matter of fact, but the easiest way is the Twitters, uh, Nicholas black 60. You will get no value from reading my random rants and tweets, but you may see some cool JPEGs. (laughs) Where will they get value on your television channel? You're selling yourself short here, Nick. You really are. Nick, where can they watch your show? So I do a show on money on Money Map Press. Uh, you can look up moneymorninglive.com and just look up Nick Black. And we do a show three times a week, again, where we talk about how the macro space, uh, both macro and microeconomics, kind of interact with the digital asset space and what that might mean for us as we move forward and try to look at where we're going to put our value units. And hopefully I can buy six loaves of bread tomorrow for, for the same price as I bought them today. Awesome. Awesome. There's no way you're buying six loaves of bread. Look at you. You're jacked. It's because of the bread. It's because of the bread. a mile of you, (laughs) let alone six. 
Uh, Nick, I loved it. Jeff, fantastic. Any final thoughts from you, Jeff? No, just, you know, again, that the, the, we're looking at this technology innovation and you can, I think you can be enthused by seeing that how people are trying to attempt to solve the big problem and doing so in, you know, very human, very uh, traditional way. And that's, that's what we're optimistic about. And it's not necessarily this coin, that coin, whatever. It's, it's really about moving toward a future where some of these things are actually possible. Well, I was educated. I enjoyed listening to both of you teachers today. So I hope the audience was as well. And Nick, I can't wait to have you back on. I look forward to it. You guys have the smartest audience in the financial space. That's the way you flatter us. (laughs) 